This is our first making it up from drastically different time zones. Where are you right now? I'm, I'm currently in not quite the armpit of Canada, but close. I'm in Edmonton. Although I personally love Edmonton, it's it's kind of where I grew up. And every time I come back, it's it's almost as though I've stepped back in time because nothing really changes. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, mean, I think when I was younger, I kind of hated coming back. and. It would, Everything had to be referential to some other place I visited recently. And you, I think that's sort of like the immaturity of traveling when you're young. You're like, oh, every place is better than where you're from when you're not from a big city. But other than that, you know, it's good to see my family, my parents. Mm. My mom is, has been insistent on shoving a ton of food down my throat. Like every single meal has been accounted for. So while you were making coffee back in Hong Kong. Yeah. I, I had to pop down real quick for a 15 minute meal where she made meatloaf and she steamed like a crab she picked up today. Wait, so in the 15 minutes where I made my morning coffee, you ate like another full meal? We got to cover everything before food coma hits you. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we should get started for today's show. Do you want to read off some of the topics we'll talk about today, Sharice? Yeah. Today, we're going to talk about how cash and music labels influence Spotify playlists. Longtime recognized skater Brian Anderson makes his mark in another very different way and talks about coming out. How the publication The Toast came into being and why it shut down after three years. And net neutrality loses an advocate in Tumblr. So on the topic of how does cash and music influence your Spotify playlist? Um, as we all know, Spotify is a business that's clearly looking at looking at ways of increasing its revenue, um, I did a little bit of background research. In 2016, they had $3.2 billion in revenue with operating losses in excess of $332 million US dollars. So obviously, like most things of scale, advertising is naturally where you default to when you're looking at ways to increase revenue. Yeah. Um, and you know, this one article that we came across actually did a pretty good job of outlining the, the behind the scenes um, of how this whole world works. The article by Watt broke down sort of, um, I guess a little bit the interesting side of how playlists have now sort of become this new cultural currency. And, you know, the way that the business model works of, Hey, you know what? Do some marketing with Spotify and you'll find yourself as a placement in a, in a playlist. That was kind of fascinating to me because it's no different than in the publishing world where, Hey, run some ad campaigns and then, you know, somewhere down the line, expect an editorial feature. There are these different labels that each have their own sort of playlist brands. So Sony has filter, uh, Warner has Topsify and Universal has Digster. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that was so clever. That was so clever of the music brands because in this instance, they don't want to be seen as Sony, Warner and Universal. And like 90% of the population is never going to realize that those playlists are um, like the same person is behind that. Do you think that it's an issue to have, you know, music inserted into your playlist when there's an exchange of money behind the scenes? So another thing that has also been really interesting you know, in the last week or so, there was a new function that appeared on Spotify where they're going to start doing sponsored songs. Mm -hmm. So just like you have, you know, a sponsored ad in your Instagram story, 
you can now have a sponsored song that you have to opt out of if you don't want it. So that's kind of where we're heading with Spotify anyways. I mean, I, as I understand, there's probably going to be differentiation between free users and uh, subscribers because, I mean, you're probably not expecting to have ads served to you if you're paying. But I mean, it might be just an opt-in, opt-out thing. So Eugene, can I ask you, do you use Spotify and is it the main way you discover music? Before I divulge the fact that I'm probably 99.9% podcast driven when it comes to audio content. Not, not the person to that ask 1% this question on to? Spotify is really not the person to ask, but I'm as, as always pretty fascinated by the way creative platforms find sustainability because at the end of the day, it's like if there's any industry that's been severely disrupted in the last decade, it's obviously music and finding ways for people to continue to create music that's sustainable and or making sure they get paid properly. Mm -hmm. This is why this whole topic is so fascinating because if you're inevitably able to increase revenue, whether or not that necessarily translates into, you know, increased kickback to songwriters, artists and whatnot, there's an uncertainty behind that, but it's still something worth considering because it, it, it's now another opportunity towards greater sustainability. The numbers will always sort of dictate what sort of case someone has. So, okay. Well, first of all, I think we do have to, even though I know you probably listen to less music than I do or the rest of the team does, um, I think it's important to talk about how people listen to music when talking about this issue because it's not just like about advertising, right? It's also about how um, Spotify and the end users interact, like the people who listen to the music. And then uh, you were talking about how the sponsored songs and the major labels influencing playlists could generate potentially more revenue for the artists themselves. Correct. Huh. Um, okay, yes, I agree that I think... Spotify finding ways to generate more revenue will eventually kick back to some artists, but the entire way this set up kind of kills independent artists even more. Like independent artists were already kind of not making their way into Spotify at all. But the way Watt describes the playlist infrastructure, like how those get built and marketed to users means like small artists might never get exposure. Basically yes. pay to play, which is illegal for radio. So actually one of my questions was if you think the U.S. law and FCC are going to develop similar laws for digital streaming platforms as they have for radio. I think they'll have to, especially now, you know, FTC is really trying to crack down on transparency. I never really thought of it that way because this is my ignorance slash lack of education behind the small guys yeah. that probably yielded sort of like a nice romantic notion that, hey, you know what? If Spotify makes more money, then more artists make money. But you're right. Like if you look further and start peeling away the layers, Spotify is simply setting itself up to be a closed system. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that closed system will mean that increasingly it'll serve the purpose of providing music. Yeah. It won't necessarily serve the purpose of providing the full gamut of music. Yes, exactly. One thing that did make me think this is not super terrible, like somehow I think advertorials is worse, is the idea that maybe music is still 
more democratic in a way. Like you can get a song in front of a listener, but you can't make them like it. But I don't know if that's true. Like maybe, maybe human minds don't work that way. Like if Sony and Spotify collaborate to get this one hit in front of you like 30 times a week, like maybe you just wind up liking it. But do you think that this route taken by Spotify Mm -hmm. in some way strengthens the bonds of a SoundCloud that has always sort of championed the more independent artist? And it becomes less about, it becomes less about paying money to be heard. Okay, so this is why I asked you about how you listen to music and how you discovered music, because I wonder if using Spotify is kind of a um, less difficult answer to people's needs for new music. Like Spotify is an easy thing for me as a consumer to do in order to find out what's popular now. Mm-hmm. And SoundCloud is requires me to put more effort into my music discovery. And some people like that, some people don't like that. Yeah, exactly. And I I think people would could really enjoy SoundCloud if they put in the time, but now it's like I'm saying, oh, you got to put in effort to find the good stuff. And I guess ideally it would be where Spotify naturally um, promoted songs from the bottom up, like gave the little guys a chance to rise in the charts if like their song was actually good. But the way it's set up, that never happens. How important is it for you to know that something has been placed in front of you, not because of merit, but because of dollars? Um, okay, but I mean, I guess I would like that transparency, but also when it comes to music, I feel like they're also only going to promote things they think would be popular anyway, right? Do you know who a current hit artist is, Eugene? Just name a current hit artist. Like, I don't know, the Migos? Okay, Migos. I like how how hesitant I was. I was like, oh my God, this is a chance I might get put on blast. <laughs> so I, I did put you on the spot there to come up with an example, but just to save my own skin. Um, okay, so Migos, do you think the sudden rise in popularity of Migos was purely organic? No, I don't think so. I, I there's definitely There's definitely powers at play behind the scenes that ensure they're getting visibility. So do you feel bad about that? Um, as in, do I feel I'm cheated? Do I feel as though? Yeah. Do you feel like you were deceived somehow? I'm trying to think of how I, how I view the classification of music as a, as a consumer good relative to other things. Right. You know, I think there's something very different about music where it's, if you've actually asked a really interesting question, because if I think about it, I personally, Look, I'll always be probably five steps behind in terms of just looking at other people's interaction and, and how they react to it. And there is part of it that, to be very honest, it's probably part a bet by some, you know, whether it's an industry label, but also the fact that quote unquote product is relevant, mm-hmm. right? To get to the, to the size and to get to the level of engagement they've achieved. It's because they've struck a chord with with the current quote unquote market. Yeah. So I actually think that it's not as easy as like, hey, let me put this in front of everybody because that doesn't always work. Yeah, I don't feel bad. I think, or I don't even think feeling bad was the right way of 
of framing this this argument. It's more that the way they've set everything up still required a sense of understanding of where we are currently as a culture and maybe pandering or creating a something that is relevant for culture. Yeah. If if I was to wrap it up and and outline how I see playlists as this new form of currency, I think transparency is obviously key. Um, will we ever get to a point where, hey, you know what? Universal dropped, you know, five million dollars on an ad campaign with Spotify, and they're going to disclose why this playlist now features, you know, five of their artists. It'd be nice whether we're going to get there. I don't know, but I think that's sort of the goal we should strive to achieve mm. as an industry. Right. So it's not so much about does this label generated playlist make us feel somehow deceived, but more just always asking big companies to be as transparent as possible. And respect us as consumers. Yeah. Cool. Moving on. Sure. Um, so topic number two, um, having made his mark in skating, Brian Anderson now is influencing skate culture in a different way. Um, back in September of 2016, he came out as the first professional skater. And in a recent video by the New Yorker, they sort of followed along with him and kind of spoke to him about what it was like, kind of the the range of emotions, his feelings about being, you know, one of the few people that knew they were gay within the sport of skateboarding, but mm-hmm. not being able to disclose his actual sexuality. You know, he's he's by no means just sort of like on the periphery skater. Like he's a very well-known guy. He's had his own shoe with Nike. He was voted skater of the year by Thrasher magazine. Yeah. There's a sense of elevation when the New Yorker comes in and tries to tell the story. Um, looking back on everything that's played out, I think skateboarding falls within sports. What I mean, some people will debate that, but let's just say for this argument, like, and sports have always been an extremely homophobic environment. Yeah. Like the overall masculinity angle of sports has not really prevented people from necessarily being themselves. And I think if you have someone to come out in a sport like skateboarding, I mean, that, that's honestly something that, that pays a lot of dividends for future generations. The one thing that I'm curious about and I don't have the answer and I don't think you necessarily have the answer is skateboarding has always been very liberal. So what has been the disconnection between, you know, the ability to be openly gay and the sport itself? I mean, that's not necessarily, it's more of a rhetorical question, but maybe someone, maybe some, some of the listeners can chime in in, in that regards. But, um, I mean, I actually had, I watched the video and I had a similar question, which is, you know, what is it about sports in general that makes it still a homophobic area i really believe that you know when you when you're out there um there's two things that are actually two themes that are actually competing against one another in one sports. is that yeah in sports like on the field in a team sport anything mm-hmm. there's often the belief that hey you know what you don't even need to like the person next to you on your team you guys have just identified a common goal of winning and you're going to play out you know for for the whole game under that same goal. Okay. So it's like if it's soccer or football, you're going to, you're going to fight for each other for 90 plus minutes. But then also to that point, if you're not super masculine and you start to embody some of the traits of, of the, 
other side, then I think that's when things start going a little sideways. Um, I don't even know if that's the right way of putting it, but it's just that it calls into question whether this person has that quote unquote killer instinct to win. Mm. And there's different ways of breaking it down because I've always looked at it as, you know, are there certain traits that exist? You know, if you were to adopt maybe the traits of, of the female mind, and this is me, this is funny because it comes on the back of that Sarah Kim piece we did. And, you know, I, I, I don't even know if I can necessarily communicate my thoughts precisely, but I can anecdotally kind of tell you that there are certain characteristics you wanted a teammate and those characteristics don't involve weakness. Right. Right. And that is something that kind of aligns with masculinity. Mm, well, I think the PC way to say that would be that aligns with the popular perception of masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I love the story. I think it's a very positive story. Um, I think the video was done well. I, I am slightly concerned for Brian Anderson because he's only come out recently and something he expresses as well is that he doesn't know how places other than big cities are going to react to him in light of him coming out. Um, and my question is just talking about the sports sector, not the world in general, in the sports sector, how do we, or what is the solution to combating homophobia? Does it require more big athletes to come out that are not, or is there something else that we can sort of proactively do? It's really difficult. I think that because when it comes to, to sexuality, it starts crossing into certain parts and certain pillars of society and culture mm -hmm. that go, that are so ingrained that go far beyond a sport, right? Like your, your religious beliefs start coming into play. There's all these things that I, I think make it very difficult, but to have someone who is well respected that maybe doesn't, isn't gay to come out and actually champion their cause and, and the, the ability for someone to kind of truly represent who they are. I think that goes a long ways, mm. you know, and I'm trying to think for myself, like when I was younger, not necessarily understanding sexuality like being that super that almost jock like dude who was so quick to dismiss someone who showed weakness mm -hmm. i'm personally trying to understand what was the switch for me that made me start to respect and understand that these were non-compatible things on in sport that didn't need to be seen in the same vein yeah right it was like you don't just because you show weakness doesn't mean you can't be a great sportsman Does that makes sense yeah it does and I, and that was the one thing that for me, like I look at it now and like, I think there's a sense of tolerance that I have now that I probably didn't have, you know, when I was a lot younger. Can I ask you a slightly more personal question? Of course. Do you find it hard to kill the stereotypes in your head about LGBTQ people? Like even when you know that it's wrong to have stereotypes. Do I think it's, mm, no, I don't think it's difficult, but I, I've also been very proactive in educating myself mm. and understanding. And, but I, that's the thing. Maybe that is the root of the problem. It's the educational aspect. Yeah. 
you know, and I think that's, I've always been very interested in that and like taking note of, of all these things that arise. And I mean, I, I believe that a more LGBT QI friendly, did I get that right? That acronym? <laughs> I don't LGBT. really know. I think there are other, um, parts of the spectrum. Be, becoming more open towards that world, I think automatically involves, um, more acceptance, right? Yeah. It's just like, it's going to have massive spillover because this is, this is, we're talking about, you know, sexuality within sport, but sexuality and culture and society trumps sport. So you're going to have natural trickle down. Yeah. That's true. But I, I mean, my personal interest is just to make sure that it's fine to go and compete against one another. And I think that's the beauty of sport is like respectfully competing against one another and demanding the best from, you know, challenging your opponent, challenging your teammates and doing it in a respectful way is like, you know, I, I'm probably the worst person because I've growing up, I've been so consumed with the competitive aspect that sometimes that when you're in the heat of the moment, like that stuff flies out the window. I'm sure I've said unsavory things on the pitch that, that I, it's not that I was deliberately out to say it. It's just like in the spur of the moment, knowing what the societal norms are and what is offensive and saying to someone like, I'm, I, I look back on it and like, dude, this, that's not acceptable for me to do certain things. But I think now looking back, it's like, as I get older, I'm like, I understand why. And I, I would love to use that opportunity if it ever arose to see, other, if anyone ever got in that situation, I think it's like an opportunity to educate them. Mm. I think if there's one thing I'm super emotional, but it's always been sports. Yeah. I've seen you, you get worked up. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to uh, move on to the next one. <laughs> Revealing your weaknesses. Yeah. Moving on. Okay. Yeah. This is all you, Sharice. This is something like <laughs> I I really enjoyed. Like this is um I know you submitted this to the to the reading list and it was good to see someone else's sort of interests transpire and just kind of understand, you know, something that obviously was very impactful to not only you but a lot of women. Yeah. Um and just see what it's all about. Okay. So Sarah Scholes wrote a profile of Mallory Ortberg, who was the co-founder of The Toast. Um, and in this profile, which is sort of a traditionally formatted profile, like Scholes goes and speaks to her family and uh, her friends, her co-founder, etc. The profile describes Ortberg's upbringing, um, coming from a religious background, kind of how she, how her career led her to start The Toast. And then the idea of the toast being more than just like a publication, like they almost not, they don't talk at all pretty much about the toast as like a place where people read articles and more about the toast as a place where people could so go to support one another as people. And one of the things that I found the article really enlightening to myself, but the reason I shared it was shared it specifically with you and make it people is because they say, you know, the toast was not this easily defined idea, right? And one of the co-founders says, we were really bad at elevator pitching it. It's always been just the set of things Mallory or I thought were funny or good. And this reminded me of Macon. Um, I don't know if you had a similar feeling reading it, but if someone who has no experience with the toast reads this profile, they're not going to get really a better understanding of what the toast is. Yeah, after reading it, I was pretty fascinated. I'm like, what is this? And the one thing that stuck out to me was having Hillary Clinton sort of, you know, sign off the site mm -hmm. in its closing moments. And when I looked at it, I, I think I was kind of interested 
for several reasons. Like I actually came up with a bunch of questions on my own. I was like, okay, first and foremost, what impact do you think the toast had on you, Sharice? So as we totally honest, I was not like a toasty, right? Like the toast was similar to how we talked about the skim. The toast was sort of like the same level, like on my radar, um, while, during its existence. But I think what my personal, um, imp- the impact that the toast had on me personally would be this idea that it was a really nice place for people to hang out on the internet. And that's so not the internet, you know, like I'm just surprised. I'm surprised at how widely applauded it was and that no one ever hated on it or no one went and tried to like troll the toast, like in their comment sections amongst the community. And that's really strange to me. Like what made about, what was it? I really don't know. Right. Like what was it that kept them from being attacked in that way? And the only answer I have is that, you know, it was only around for three years. They didn't even make it to the point where people hated it. And I also was curious, like the, why do you think that I'd never heard of the toast? Um, because it's female centric. Do you think that it, it, it only touched upon things that were relevant to females? I mean, no, but I don't think they, I, they're, Motive was not to like, let's get more male readers. Got it. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I just found it. I was looking at it. I'm like, man, this is obviously a universally respected for the most part. I mean, space for, you know, they couldn't even really describe what they were. You know, I think <laughs> they used a bunch of like aloof terms. I'm like, what is this? But, yeah. you know, I kind of knew it was like based around um, literature. But I, I, I always find these things fascinating because... When something's successful and people kind of walk away, I think that's incredibly respectable when, you know, you could just drag it on. Like, you know, people want you to continue on, but you personally, in some ways, it's almost, you're kind of being selfish too, because you're providing value to this massive community, but you're like, no, I'm over it. You know, that's kind of interesting. Maybe they couldn't sustain it uh, um, financially. I don't know, but they couldn't see that's the thing is that. So I, I, there are a lot of similarities, like reading this on one hand, I was like reading about the toast, but I was also like, what if this is in our future in a way, like as Megan? Oh yeah, totally, totally. Because that's one of the co-founders put up their own money to like front the company. And even though they could hire people, they were never like truly profitable. Like one of the co-founders never drew a salary. And I guess they just wound up being like, we don't want to somehow sell this out to monetize it. So we're just going to close it. I don't know if I necessarily feel I'm in such dire straits, but then, you know, <laughs> I've, I think that it's always the reality. I mean, three years is generally that right around that time. If, if you don't, if you make it past three, then you've, you've sort of bucked a trend. But if you don't make it past three, you kind of join the massive list of startups, especially media startups that never made it. You know, what's also really interesting about this piece is the idea that the Toasties, like what they call the people who read the Toast avidly, still have a currently existing community. And yeah. I love that idea. Even though the Toast isn't around, I love that they were able to draw this crowd of people that still wants to hang out with each other. Should we move on to the last topic? Sure. Our last topic is net neutrality, 
losing an advocate in Tumblr. So the history of Tumblr is that the CEO and founder, David Karp, has often been um, quite outspoken, publicly outspoken, in defense of net neutrality. And just to take one step back, net neutrality is the belief that the internet should be open and equal, regardless of what the content is. Okay, so that like an internet provider cannot throttle your service for any specific content. Back to Tumblr. Since Verizon purchased Tumblr, it's prevented, well, we conjecture that it's prevented David from speaking on the matter publicly. So we totally upfront, like The Verge, they interview um, people who used to work at Tumblr, currently work at Tumblr, like anonymously. And these employees are all saying like, yeah, Yahoo has been kind of like keeping the lid on David Karp, but we we don't know for certain. And then when I read this, like when we were preparing for this podcast, I felt like we should just call this episode How Big Business Ruins Things. Because that's like the theme of all of these I guess stories. So. Corporations are not out there creating great products, which is a bit of a concern, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess you could argue in the case of net neutrality, it's like they're improving experiences, but I think this is sort of a very liberal versus conservative take on how to how to view the classification of the internet. Man, I think there is only one way to look at net neutrality, and it is really hard for me to see the other way to look at net neutrality. So I can't even, I can't even pretend to try and argue for the side that I don't even know how to phrase it in a way that doesn't make the people who defend, um, what, I don't even know what to call the opposite of net neutrality, net non-neutrality. Let me feed you this word. All right. The word you want to use is traffic prioritization okay so i have no way of talking about this that doesn't make the traffic prioritization people sound evil like i don't know how to defend their side of this argument even the words traffic prioritization they are literally trying to put a hierarchy on the internet all right sorry i'll I'll get less mad now we can we can talk about david karp I, you know, to, to lose Tumblr as an advocate for net neutrality is a big deal, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because Tumblr is such, um, it's such a strong community for the next generation, right? Yeah. Like they need to know why it's important, why it matters. And you cannot just leave it in the hands of a, of certain people to push that agenda. I think that Tumblr has proven to be a voice, a very strong voice for a generation of digital natives that don't really know anything else, right? They grew up on Tumblr. So you kind of want them in your corner. You want them at some point in time when they leave, not when they leave Tumblr, but when they they begin making major decisions within companies that they understand why net neutrality is important. Yeah. Right? And that's a concern because like if you lose Tumblr, who's who's really going to begin pushing for that agenda? Yeah. And this also is an, another interesting narrative too, is that you see a lot of, you see this happening a lot where major communication companies like your Verizons, like your Comcast, they're all trying to stock up on media related properties because yep. they just basically need to own the gamut. Yep. Right. And that's basically they trying to, everyone just wants to create their own closed system. So net neutrality obviously flies in the face of that. 
And even to that point, it's like all these people kind of run on advertising. So is there a way for people to sustain without advertising? And that is the kajillion dollar question. Cause I think the internet has yet to prove itself that it can sustain without advertising. Oh. Damn, the hella dystopian, you know? <laughs> I know. You're just, it's listening to you and it just got more and more bleak. Like, ah, uh, you started out and you're just talking about like this one company and then it was like, no, the next generation needs to be educated. Big businesses buying up media property. The internet dying was essentially the conclusion. It, even the fact that we're bringing this up, it doesn't mean that it's confirmed, right? It might, it might slowly seep in, but ah, th- having this conversation at the forefront, I'm, I'm, I, I really believe that we're going to be in a place at least we're bringing it to the forefront and educating consumers in all capacities. That's at least something I can stand behind. You know, I mean, okay. in this current state, I can't say that you have tens of thousands of people listening to this podcast, but it would be great at some point in time if you could activate a community of people who are all interested and have a stake in the future of, you know, this global culture society mm-hmm. and obviously digital culture to, to feel as though this, this needs to happen. I feel like my question to you slash in this podcast is always, okay, there's this, we have identified this problem. It's a really big problem. You know, if a media company, if David Karp cannot fight for it, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, what are you, me, other making members supposed to do in light of this massive problem? All I've got is that, is the bit that you were saying about educating young people. If I just try to tell as many people as possible about net neutrality, I, I'm not even going to tell them like what to do about it. I just, I'm just going to tell them that this exists. Then that's like my two cents I can pitch in. Con- contextualized education is important. It's like, it's one thing to tell people, oh, net neutrality is important, but how do you spin it in a way that's relevant to their lives? So it actually hits home. That's a first way of looking at it. But I, the second part of it is that. This is the part I'm really not that familiar with and I've never really understood it. But now that I get more into understanding policymakers and how they can have a significant impact in messing things up, I mean, it's really about starting to get involved in the conversation and finding ways to like put pressure on the people that do make your decisions in your constituents. Mm. But it's also very difficult because I'm not American. You're not American. That's true. With this, a lot of this is for better or worse. And this is also something that worth bringing up is a lot of things we talk about happen in a place that's outside of our, our home. It's <laughs> so funny. Right? It's true. It does serve as an interesting battleground because some of those things can be, some of those learnings that happen in other places can definitely be taken and extracted and applied to things that happen at home. Well, I think. I think one of the things that's fascinating to us about news that is US centric is that here in Hong Kong, for me at least, like being very real, the situation is already that bad, right? Like China does throttle the internet and they don't pretend that they don't, you know, there's no, there are no smoke screens. Whereas in the States, it's always been this open internet system. So it kind of feels like if the U.S., this champion of like equal internet since the beginning of time, changes their policy, it will influence the way other countries 
make their policies. That, I guess that's, that's the conjecture. Or the, the really, really sort of far-fetched approach to it is we just have to bankrupt the system or leave the system and just start a new one. And that to me is something that 2017 onwards has proven to be a fascinating place because there's just this massive splitting, this massive fork in the road for so many things. Mm -hmm. And net neutrality could follow a path where, unfortunately, you know, if you can't afford a certain service, you'll have to go towards a traffic prioritized service that's cheaper, but it at least serves, you know, your needs based on your budget. Or you could also see other people breaking away and finding other options. Yeah. I mean, decentralization is kind of where we want to see the internet go because it just allows more freedom rather than having all the control in the hands of select people and expecting them to, to have our best interests. I wonder if it's possible at this point to make a new internet. Um, I believe uh, the guy on Silicon Valley was trying to do that. Wait, was that yeah, a TV show old. reference? Yeah, that was a really bad one. Um, I'll probably cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> you can leave it in. There are a lot of intelligent people that will serve different parts of this fight. Some will be the communicators that can communicate this whole battle. Other people will actually build the infrastructure. Yeah. I think that, I think there's enough people out there that care about this that it's not as dire, as dire as you think it is. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not losing sleep over this exactly. The, I think the ending of this net neutrality story could go either way. I th that seems like a cop out answer, but I really think that it's. <laughs> No, that's I guess that's, that's my optimistic ending to this podcast is that we don't need to be so pessimistic as we've been describing. It's, it's not the end of the internet quite yet. We're chipping away at it, but I think there's a lot of upside to it as well. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon and its membership opportunities, head over to Macon.com. Um, you'll be able to see some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. And one thing I'm really excited to say is now we're available on a lot of your favorite podcast apps. So check us out. Just do a quick search and subscribe to us. We're adding both this podcast and a lot of old archival stories. So mm. if you happen to be, you know, on going on a, a long haul flight or you need something to listen to while you're at the gym, we got you covered. I'm Sharice. I'm <laughs> I'm Eugene. <laughs> Can we please leave it in? Oh my god. Okay, sorry. Do you want to just clearly our that food coma is taking over? I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is making it up. <laughs> amazing. Cut, that was cut, the most cut, amazing cut. ending. <laughs>